Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Hendrickens, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I'm really delighted to welcome Malika Narayan to the podcast today. Malika is a writer, singer, and digital artist based in Pennsylvania. Her short fiction is featured in Ellipsis Sign, Bath Flash Fiction, Noctavagen Press, and elsewhere. She was a runner-up in the Retreat West 2022 Flash Fiction Prize and has been long-listed and short-listed for various other prizes, including the Bath Flash Fiction Prize 2022 and the Fractured Lit Microfiction Prize 2021. Her critically acclaimed thriller, In the Dark I See You, debuted in October of 2023. I am looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Julie. I'm so thrilled to be here. Well, I'm fascinated that you write microfiction and flash fiction, and then you also are novelist. But let's start where I always start in this conversation. Um, when did you say to yourself, I want to write a novel? Um, that is such a good question. And I've heard so many writers say this, and I think it's true for me, too that I think it was the most wonderful accident <laughs> um, that got me to writing seriously. Um, I've worked as a web designer, a web coder, and um, an a web architect in the past. And um, as far as I can think back, I've always been attracted to everything that's creative, painting, sketching, needlework. Mm -hmm. I mean, name it, I have done it. Um, furniture designing everything and interestingly enough now that I think back I have also always written whether or not I thought about it as I'm a writer mm -hmm. so I would keep travel journeys as a kid like when we would go as a family I would keep little travel diaries you know list everyone's little trespasses so I can get revenge <laughs> after people about it all those kinds of little things. Um, I think my earliest publication was actually in seventh grade when I wrote a little poem and it was um, published in uh, like the magazine of the, uh, the city that we lived in, Mumbai. Um, and But I think seriously, it was when I quit my uh, job as a web designer in 2013, 2013. 2013, I want to say, um, I was kind of looking for something new to do because I had been designing for a long time and I've spent long hours in front of the computer. Mm -hmm. and, um, while I was looking for something new to do, I read Agatha Christie's um, autobiography. And I read that she actually wrote her first novel, um, The Affair Styles, as uh, a dare from her sister to see mm -hmm. who could write a better mystery. Um, I think we know how that one turned out. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of inspired me because I got thinking, okay, why not I dare myself? Because I love mysteries. I have 
always been drawn to mystery suspense, even as a child. I mean, I would read all mystery books that my library could would would have. Um, so I wrote my first historical novel. Um, this was supposed to be my filler time until I figured out what what I was going to do next. Yes. But my mom fell, uh, she was recovering from an accident at that time. And I would send her chapter after chapter, like as I wrote it. And somewhere along the way, I took, I think, two or three days gap to send her a chapter. And she was like on the phone yelling at me, like, where's my next installment? (laughs) (laughs) And that was so exciting. I'm like, yay, somebody, even if it's my mom, actually wants to read something I've written. I wrote book one, spent more time looking what you know, to do something with my life next. I wrote book two while I was still waiting. And I think it was when I began book three that I realized, okay, why am I looking for something new to do while I am doing something new? And it's wonderful and I feel great doing it. So that's kind of how I realized, okay, I am now a writer. I'm going to be a writer. Well, this is so you started a serialized, um, you know, uh, novel as a dare to yourself. Um, How else did you build the craft of writing as you're as you're writing these, you know, chapters for your mom and and daring yourself? Um, I think the process um, was slow. And like any new writer, I realized that draft one was never going to cut it. Draft one is just me getting the story out of my system. Um, you know, so I got feedback. Uh, my mom, my dad, like I am I'm surrounded very fortunately by voracious readers. And they have read so much and they read so quickly that they are able to spot mistakes and not mistakes, but th- like room for improvement. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, structural problems, those kind of things very quickly. So I got some really good early feedback um, and I worked on a second draft and a third draft. And But to improve my craft really uh, was when I explored things other than my long fiction. So I had begun to query the first book. I was getting nowhere with it, um, you know, and... I think it was where 2018, um, it was just the general feeling, the global stuff that was going on at that time, uh, the Me Too movement and everything. And I felt compelled to write this really short little piece that was just heartfelt and it just came out as it was. And um, I give it to very few select people to read. And they were like, okay, this is hardcore and it's very affecting and you should submit it somewhere. And until then, it hadn't even struck me that I should submit, mm-hmm. you know, my short work because I was thinking of it as experimental. Um, and I had written my first microfiction without even knowing what a microfiction was at the time. And it got picked up. And, um, you know, that got me exploring more and more uh, short fiction. I liked the way it made me think. Um, I liked the fact that I could complete a story very quickly and get that satisfaction that, yay, Mm -hmm. I completed a project. So for listeners, can you define microfiction and flash fiction and let them know exactly what those, what that is? Sure. So um, I guess these terms kind of sound confusing. Um, 
flash fiction, for example, is considered as anywhere from 500 words up until up to about 1,000, maybe even 1,200 words. Um, it depends on the magazines and the journals that you're submitting to if you are planning to submit, uh, because each, you know, each of them have a slightly different definition of this, but largely flash fiction is 500 up to 1,200. Anything below 500 is called microfiction. Um, it could be as few as 50 words, as few as even 10 words. Um, I think the, the um, I'm not sure um, who the really famous, and I'm ashamed about this, but who's the really famous writer who wrote a six, six word microfiction story? Um, Ernest Hemingway, I think. Perhaps. <laughs> Very likely. <laughs> the one, um, for sale, baby shoes never used. Yeah, never I think that's Hemingway. Um, I'll double check on that. <laughs> so as few as six words or five words. I mean, you can write a story in two words, if you like. But microfiction is just a story that, I mean, a, a concept or even a full story, depending on what kind of uh, theme you're writing on, um, in, in very, very few words. Um and then, of course, it you know it stretches on from there. You have a short story that comes from anywhere two thousand, three thousand upwards. I think up to fifteen thousand. So um, there's a there's a lot out there um, in terms of various types of um, short fiction, creative short fiction that can be explored. And I've said this before in the podcast, but it's not necessarily true that people who can write novels can write short fiction and vice versa. They are two different skill sets. And, and you know, um, some people think in novelists, you know, bigger, and some people are really good at crafting those words. I mean, for microfiction, you're, you know, you're really, every single word counts <laughs> um, and needs to have a ton of extra, uh, of extra meaning. So you, you, honed your craft by doing these shorter pieces what about that challenge for yourself helped you build the craft and build the muscle for writing a novel um that was a slow process because just like long fiction and how it took me two years to kind of get in the flow and really understand things like structure arc whether it's the character arc or the story arc um short fiction has those exact same qualities they just apply differently mm -hmm. and that took me two three years i mean i'm still learning i always look at any craft as always learning um and it took me two or three years to really understand how to craft these stories so they actually come across as a story and not just a snippet of a thought. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, it may be not uh, everyone can do short fiction or wants to do short fiction, and that's absolutely okay. We should write what we want to write. Um, and if you're interested in trying something new, then this is a great way to explore that. Um, right. It also offers opportunities to get published, you know, um, microfiction, short fiction, short um, stories, things like that um, are a way a lot of novelists, you know, a lot of writers get their first publication credits. Absolutely. 
my first publication was yeah. um, the microfiction that I had written in 2018. And I kept exploring from there. I joined various um, uh, groups that, you know, specifically do flash fiction. Um, and I think the thing that really drew me to it is how it makes you weigh and choose your words. And whether you're writing a, a six-word story or a 90,000-word story, the words you use matter. Mm -hmm. It's just in long fiction, you have the luxury of pulling those words across to convey your uh, point a little slower, a little more staggered, um, you know, depending on the genre that you're writing. Whereas in short fiction, that one word really needs to pull its weight. Yes. Um, yes. And that... <laughs> That really, I love that aspect of flash fiction because it makes you think differently. Mm -hmm. It makes you use words that you might not use in long fiction and gets you thinking parallelly. And that in turn helped me write my long fiction better because mm -hmm. when I got back to writing novel length stories, every time I would like write a paragraph, um, I would write on. And then when I came back to just reading it through, I would look at the words very carefully because I've been doing that for the short fiction. And I would think, but these are so many extra words. <laughs> and I could say this whole thing, you know, succinctly in one sentence. And sometimes that's okay. And sometimes that's not because mm -hmm. the model of long fiction is different. Yes. And, and that kind of helped me think, rethink the words that I use and the sentences in which I use them. So it was a very... Um, I think it was like the best part of my writing journey was the exploration um, and experimenting with the uh, flash fiction and microfiction. So going back to your first, you know, dare to yourself and you're writing um, this, this serialized novel that you're sending to your folks and, um, you know, you're learning how to write a novel. There's no better way to learn how to write a novel than to write a novel. I mean, our first novels tend to be not, not great, but, <laughs> but they <laughs> teach us how to write a novel. You mentioned it was a historical mm -hmm. novel. Talk to me about that and then your journey into what you write currently. I mean, talk to me about the what intrigued you about the historical and, you know, what the research was and, and, you know, that journey. I think we're all deeply influenced by what we read. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was reading a lot of historical fiction. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Victorian era, um, even before like the, um, you know, 16th century, 17th century. Um, and I think that influenced me. That got me sucked into that that time of the world, that era of this world. And... Um, so naturally, when I wanted to write, I that was the instinctively that was the era that I chose, mm -hmm. and it sat well in my head. It was a Victorian era mystery, um, and the series that I wrote continued featuring the same characters, but they were each standalone novels. Um, and somehow I, I really liked how that I still, those novels are still very dear to me. I don't know, <laughs> you know, sit on a bookshelf somewhere, but I still, those are the closest to my heart. Um, and then after I explored, um, you know, with flash fiction and experimented with microfiction, it got published a few times. Uh, 
the next novel idea that came to me was naturally a contemporary one. Um, and it surprised me. I was like, I always thought I was going to write more historical fiction. But then when the contemporary novel idea came to me, it was like instinct. Mm -hmm. I should follow my instinct. And this one tells me it needs to be contemporary for the story to make sense. So that's how I wrote that first contemporary story, which um, which is shelved now. And then I went on writing a new one. But then I once I got into contemporary, I realized that I need to right now write contemporary stories. And that's that's how that shift happened. And you shifted from, it sounds like you shifted from historical mysteries to contemporary thrillers. Does that sound right? Yes, that's absolutely right. And so tell me about that journey, because writing a mystery and writing a thriller, again, completely different skills, you know, I mean, some of the same, of course, characters and everything else, but thrillers and mysteries, readers have different expectations and the journey in the novel is different. Tell me about, uh, about figuring out how to write a thriller. Um, just like how I didn't plan on writing that first novel, I actually didn't plan on writing a thriller. In my head, it was a mystery. Um, but as I was writing it, it was a two POV, four timeline novel. And once I was finished with the, the fourth or the fifth draft, I think, um, and I had given it to a beta reader and I had tagged it as a mystery. And she turned right around in two days and said, well, I think you mean a thriller because this is not a mystery. This is a thriller. And I hadn't even realized that I what I had written was a thriller because in my head it was still a mystery. Um, and that's when I realized, yes, I this is a thriller and I like writing thrillers and I like the structure of it. I like how it's paced. Mm -hmm. uh, the pacing of mysteries and thrillers can be very you know, can be different. Um, and I liked the the way uh, thrillers are paced. I like how it makes your heart bound. I like how you can't put a book down once you pick it up and it doesn't matter if it's, you know, if there's a tempting cake, you know, calling at you and you're like, yes, yes, I know I love cake, but I'm going to wait because I need to finish this page. Yeah. And I, I love that about <laughs> thrillers, both reading and writing. And somehow you know, that shift happened without me even planning it. Yes. And it, it, so, again, let's talk about definitions and, and how this, you know, because I think that that can be helpful. I mean, mystery is um, the the author tries to trick the reader by by putting clues in, but not, but hiding them or giving them misdirection. So at the end, the reader is surprised um, but can solve the mystery if it's, you know, if it's a good, if it's a satisfying book. I mean, we've all read mysteries where it's like, oh, you know, don't, <laughs> you, 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 that's not playing fair. But a thriller, um, and again, this is how I think of them, but you, you please let me know, is uh, uh, frequently the reader, reader knows more than anyone else in the novel. Um, because we're being told, you know, different points of view and things. And it's the journey to something being fixed or, you know, it's the bomb under the chair or it's, you know, something is driving us forward to uh, a satisfying ending. Does that sound like that makes sense? Yes, it does. Um, 
Additionally, I think a mystery can also be a thriller. Yes. But not all thrillers can be mysteries. Um, and there's also, uh, you know, the sub-genres within the thriller and suspense genre, which is psychological um, suspense, which, again, it's it's all about playing tricks with the reader's expectations, their minds, because you want them to believe something in the end. It, it could very well turn out to be not at all what they believed. Um, you know, and that a lot of readers, uh, you know, again, think of it as, oh, my God, I've been tricked. And but that is exactly what, you know, psychological suspense is about. Um, and again, a thriller can be a psychological suspense, but a psychological suspense doesn't necessarily have to be a thriller or a mystery. Yes. Yes. So good luck to everybody as they're figuring out what genre they're fighting in. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think of it as this. A mystery is when a question is posed and there is a call to answer that question by the end of the novel. Mm -hmm. A suspense or a thriller is when you're taking a reader on a journey that is suspenseful. And yes, you may be posing smaller questions along the way. Uh, you know, some the reader may figure out, some the reader might not figure out. Um, and in the end, uh, the conclusion can, can you know, uh, surprise the reader. Whether or not they are answering a bigger question is, is, is I think, better described by a mystery rather than a suspense or a thriller, if, if that helps. Um, yeah. I think that's how I understand it. I don't know. What, what do you think? No, I think that that sounds that that sounds right. I mean, that's you know, again, for for writers, we we people want to write hybrids or mashups or figuring things out. But for when you're querying or when you're um, or if you're indie, even when you're trying to figure out what you're going to tell the reader, <laughs> you need to understand how you're building reader expectations by defining what your novel is and you can surprise them, but they, they do have a set of expectations within those parameters. So it is a, uh, it is a necessary thing to figure that out and to look for other novels in the realm that are sort of like what you're writing or, you know um, you know, they call them comparative titles comps, but um, so that you can explain, this is what my book is, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's frustrating, but people want to be able to shelve it. So they want to be able to categorize it. Um, and yes. so that's part of what you do. You mentioned that the first thriller you wrote was what, did you say multiple points of view and four timelines? Yes. So you don't make life easy for yourself as you're as you're um, learning and honing your craft. Uh, no, I do not. I'm my <laughs> own worst enemy. <laughs> well, I'm also hearing that when you quit your web design job, so 10, 11 years ago, you put these challenges in front of yourself and kept writing. That's that's how you've been honing your craft is your you're writing, you're writing, you're writing, you're, you know, you're revising, you're figuring things out, you're exploring. And, um, you know, it takes a while to be able to write multiple points of view and four timelines. I mean, that's not, that's not a, a, a new writer challenge. Some new writers will try it, but it, it is something that 
you need to build up the muscle to be able to pull it off. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think that is the the exact growth that you you could set a measure for yourself as a writer. You mm-hmm. know, what you were able to do when you started out, what you were able to do three years into it, and then 10 years into it. You know, how you perceive a project when you sit down to write it, you know, and how that felt at the beginning of the process and, you know, how that feels 10 years on, you know, how how far you've come when you look back. Because it's hard to measure success in writing. Um, And I mean that apart from accolades and book sales and all that, you know, the external stuff. I mean, for yourself as a writer, how have you grown and how do you measure that? And I think you've just said that exactly. It takes time and it takes patience. You have to be patient with yourself. You have to be kind to yourself because when you sit down to write your very first novel, things aren't going to go exactly as you planned. It'll change. (laughs) And that's okay. But the thing is, you have to, if you're serious about it, like anything else in life, you have to just keep going. I I think that that's such an important part of the conversation is, is that I always liken it to being a writer and being an author. Being an author are the book sales and the events and the contracts and everything else. Being a writer is the sitting down and and doing the work. Um, And we need to be our best advocates. We need to be our best. We need to believe in ourselves ferociously in order to have the gall to try to do this (laughs) because nobody cares whether or not you write your book. That is so true. (laughs) You have to be your biggest champion. Um, When it comes to, I mean, when it comes to anything, but especially when it comes to something like writing, because there are always going to be those voices that tell you something else. There's going to be, you know, uh, critics and there's going to be um, opinions and you have to power through all that and really believe in your original thought Um, because there is, that's the beauty about it is that only you can come up with that thought and therefore you are you were born to write that story because nobody else can write that story and that's the best way to believe in yourself is nobody else can do this because the story is in my head so I am going to do it I'm going to shut out everything else and I'm going to power through this well and I think that's true of any artistic endeavor you know it's true for visual artists and it's true for for other uh, art forms but um for writers, you also get locked in your head and in this world. Um, and people around us love us and want us to succeed, but it also takes away from time with people. <laughs> and so, again, you have to be your best champion because there might be people who would love, but but try to well, do you really have to do that now? Can't we do this? You know, you have to be very um, precious about, well, precious isn't the word, but you have to be adamant that I need this time or this is my, this is what I do. And before you're published, people don't take that seriously necessarily because you haven't proven, and I'm using air quotes on that, 
that you 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 can do this. <laughs> They're like, what are you doing? You know, you're not you're not enjoying the sunshine. So what are you doing? Um, did you find that that it was it was something that was um, that it sounds like your mother was incredibly supportive and and looking forward to it. But as you've been building this craft over years, that it's it's hard to explain to people what drives you. Yes, um, it's because not everybody understands that. Not everybody understands how you can quit your job, not actively look for another paying job and take a shot at something that you haven't done before and for a career or a profession at that and not as a hobby. Because mm-hmm. that's the first thing that people ask you, oh, is it a hobby? Um, and, you know, it is hard to explain because um, especially like with my cultural background, you know, there are serious professions. Everybody's always in very serious professions. That's changed a lot, of course, now and things, you know, globally, everything's changing. But um, I, I think I've been very fortunate because um, my husband was immediately supportive and he was like, you don't need to work. I'm working. You know, we have we have enough. If this is what you need to do, you need to you need to just do it. Pursue your mm-hmm. dream. Um, and generally, a very supportive family. Uh, whether it's my own parents, whether it's Viv's parents, um, even my friends were like, "Oh, you!" In fact, some of them were not even surprised. You know, they turned around and said, "Well, I always knew you were going to do something like this. We were just waiting for it to happen." Um, and that was so interesting for me. Well, I think that this is also part of a conversation that we don't have. And I, I appreciate that we're having it because, um, you know, making a living as a writer is incredibly challenging. Making a living as a, uh, you know, I worked in theater for a long time as a as an actor or as a director, incredibly challenging. You frequently have to have portfolio careers where you're doing other things as well. But if you've got somebody in your life who can help help give you the space to be able to concentrate. You know, I was referred to them as patrons of the arts. I mean, this is what, <laughs> what, you know, this is how artists work because it's a long, it's a long career. You don't right away. Some people get huge advances, but not everybody, but you write a series of books and you build a career over time so that towards the end or towards the middle will be when it's, you know, you start reaping the rewards financially. Um, yeah. Absolutely. That is such a good point. And um, I'm every day thankful that I have such a supportive partner who didn't blink once you know to say hey but we've uh, we've been pulling in two two salaries and now we're going to do one you know that was never even a consideration it's like of course you've got to do this this is your dream and I'm so aware that not everybody has that luxury Mm -hmm. um and you know being it's it's a like you said it's a patron of the arts you know, to have that those patrons of arts around you in your life um, is so important. Otherwise, it might not be possible or it might be, but it might just take you a lot longer to get there, um, right. you know, and face those those challenges um, of uh, because, like you said, those advances and everybody's writing journey is very different, looks very different, whether it's, you know, whether it's for appearance, whether it's on paper, on, contr- you know, the contracts that you sign, every each each writer's is different and not all those contracts have those big numbers on them. No, very, no. very 
few do. Very, very few. Great. I mean, even big writers. I was fortunate enough to uh, meet Anne Cleves recently. And, you know, she was talking about her journey. And I think every big writer I've ever met has said the same thing. Um, you know, when somebody asks, oh, all this money must be great from, you know, being such a famous writer. And they turn around and say, what money? You yeah. know, that it took them years to get there, that it's not magic that you write yeah. your first novel, you land that massive contract, like six figure deals that, every, you know, that gets talked about often on social media. Um, newsflash doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> it happens to a very select few. Well, now I think that it's, and this isn't to discourage people, because as we said, you've got to separate the business of being an author from the, the craft of writing, but it is realistic and um, I think helpful to have conversations to to set expectations for folks, you know, um, because writing, no matter what you're doing, is another job. I mean, it's when you're a writer, it's going to take time and it's a part-time job or whatever you're doing. It's, it's, it's time. So, you know, with you, your skills, you could have, and you still could, you know, get in web design as a contractor to do things, you know, you can figure things out, but, but it's figuring it out and how to make space in your life for the writing that is part of the challenge of being a writer. Absolutely. And especially for new writers who are considering writing as a profession, I think these conversations are really helpful in, in setting expectations, mm -hmm. in understanding how long that, you know, that journey might take. Um, because it, like we said, it doesn't get talked about too often. And it's it's wonderful. I always find it, it's, it's such a wonderful dream to fulfill that if someone is saying, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer and I'm going to, I'm going to take that up seriously. Um, but understanding that the process, the journey, the time taken um, into turning it into a career, because the two, like you pointed out, are different parts of being a writer. I think that's so important because this is, one aspect of it the writing itself can be so rewarding mm -hmm. uh, that's not to say money isn't important <laughs> but this is just you know uh, like you said you don't want to discourage people because that is one aspect of it there are so many other aspects writing and um i think that there are many many considerations yeah and there are many ways of writing as well i mean people will get writing adjacent jobs and things but if you're a fiction writer um, making that, keeping that precious space and keeping the energy to be able to do it is so important. Yes, yes. Yeah. That ferociously, you know, lay those boundaries down. And um, it, there are many, many uh, resources available. Like Sisters in Crime is one of those, one of the amazing resources that you can chat to people about how they're setting these boundaries. Um, you know, how are they working it out with their family, with their um, fur babies? There's so many considerations in that. And chatting to people who have been doing it for a while can really help you understand how you can set those boundaries for yourself, too. Yeah, that's one of the great benefits of going to a conference or going to a Sisters in Crime chapter meeting or something else is being able to sit down in a room and look at somebody and say, talk to me. <laughs> um, because on social media, it all looks perfect and easy. And, oh, I, I type the end and it's beautiful. And, you know, in reality, it's a different journey. Uh, you talked about the 
your first books that you love, the books of your heart. Do you ever think, and now you're on this thriller path, but do you ever think I now have a skill set that I could fix these books and maybe try to sell them again? Do you ever think about that? Uh, Oh, yes. I have my Liam Neeson moments. I have a particular set of skills. Um, (laughs) 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 It is true. Um, You know, because when I look at those books, I'm, Anytime I'm in between projects, I'm so tempted to pick those projects, you know, my first two books or three books up and say, okay, maybe it's time I <laughs> looked through them again and, you know, wrote a new draft. And um, they are sitting on a shelf that I dust very often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, whether I'm going to actually fix them and put them, um, you know, out there is something I am still thinking about. Um, because like we talked about earlier, setting readers' expectations on what genre you're writing right. is hard enough to do with one genre, unless you're doing a pen name and then you're doing, you know, um, because many authors do do that and they've done it very successfully. So it's not to say it cannot be done. But as a new writer whose, you know, debut thriller has just come out three months, not even three months ago. Um, I think I want to stick to the path that I've chosen for now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the beauty about historical fiction is that you can always dust it off and rewrite it to, you know, reflect your, your newer writing skills and get them published because nothing has to change in the now. You know, it's, it's centuries ago. And it will still have been true 500 years from now because it's yeah. true to that that era that you wrote. And mm. um, and so I will always look at look on it very very optimistically. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to update the tech or or the other things that that you know more current ones do. How do you talk to me about how you get an idea for a novel? How what what's your process like in writing a novel? Um. Or writing a thriller. Let's let's talk about your current your current journey because that's that's where you are. Yes, um, I think I respond very well to prompts, whether it's contrived prompts, whether it's in the wild. Um, for me, it's all instinct. So it'll be a look or a word. Someone said something in a certain way. Um, you know, whether it's playing out in real life, whether it's it's on TV, whether it's from a book that you are currently reading. Um, sometimes you will picture that scene differently in your head. Mm-hmm. Or you will picture it exactly, but with a completely different outcome. Mm-hmm. And frequently those ideas are born out of a scene that I could picture. Um, that's how uh, In the Dark I See You came about because I was watching a crime series and, um, you know, the detective is talking to his um, partner and saying, oh, but, you know, we can never really trust witnesses, can we? I mean, you know, because everybody sees the same thing and we have 10 different opinions and everybody saw that same thing. Um, And that got me thinking, what if your main witness had you know, cannot see and, you know, has no vision. How how would, you know, you go about that investigation? And and that's how, it was a single scene, you know, with 
my my main character sitting, a detective questioning her, um, and he doesn't know that she has no vision yet. And you know, he's he's asking her these things, and she's like, "But I haven't actually seen it." And that's so frequently. It's just um, a a quick idea. The first idea, I should say, that comes out of that the thing that drew me to it. Um, that instinct, I always lean into that. Um, mm-hmm. is that. That is the thing that takes me somewhere. And then I take, once the idea is born, um, you know, I take a few days to ideate, um, to really think it out intensely, as intensely as I can, and take it through to the story, to the end. Um, even if it's not a final ending, like an ending um and those early days um you know of 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 the of the thinking of the ideating i i got that fledgling idea so so fiercely and my time around it um you know since we were talking about it before very very fiercely because those instincts you, you you need that time to lean into it and you need that time to uh let it percolate and work it so that it actually looks and feels like a story. Right. That that initial time is, you know, that conceptualizing time is so important. Um, and while you're thinking and creating and taking this fledgling idea, do you take notes? Do you write cards? We did a webinar um, as we're recording this yesterday about um, a plotting process, which really requires you not to plot in order to just have ideas and then once you you know come up with all those ideas you you move them into a structure <laughs> um but to not limit your thinking um so for folks for sisters and crime members it's the polka dot plotting um webinar that was uh it's in the webinar archives and for me that was a really interesting way of thinking about this that we with these ideas if we start to try to make them make sense as a story right away we might kill the idea because (laughs) it's not ready to be a story it's ready to inspire characters or setting or or give you scenes that you can imagine but you don't have to put them in any kind of order right away do you find, so how do you keep track of while you're you're building this idea and you're sort of nurturing it? What do you do to make sure that you're capturing some of these ideas? Um, I think of myself as a happy mix between a plotter and a pantser. So I'm not sure, planter? Yeah. <laughs> but um, because I, I've plotted once before and it kills the story for me because it took away the joy of discovering mm-hmm. where the story is going um you know so instinctively I'm a pantser um though I will have an idea of you know the characters the story so um to answer your question I do take a few notes but as few as possible I, I don't dwell too much. I have, um, it'll either be physical, like in little um, uh, sticky notes with just the character name, uh, you know, the place, 
and uh, one or two characteristics about them. The thing that strikes me the most, which can change later, but that's that's the thing that helps me build the story as I go on. Um, but I try not to write too much in the early stages. It's um, exactly because of what you said, because as you know, some the initial thoughts might not make the full story. Right. Um, you know, they can help inspire other scenes in the story. So, but if a specific scene comes to my mind about these characters and about or about, you know, um the 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 plot itself, because a thriller, you know, considering that I am writing thriller suspenses, the plot does um drive the stories to some extent too. So if something plot-related comes up, um then I will write that scene out because that can then help inspire what happens later or what happens before, um, even if it's very sporadic. So I think without realizing it, maybe I have been doing polka dot plotting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, because these ideas, you know, don't have to come in serial order. They can just be a dispersed set of dots. And then you you stitch them up together as as you weave the story together in your head. You stitch these little dots up as you go. So I write whatever comes to me whenever it comes to me. But the story itself, I don't start writing until I have a clear picture of the story in my head. And do you use do you write in Scrivener? Do you write in Word? I mean, how do you how do you write, especially if you write out of order? People who write out of order and write in word are marvels to me because I can't, I would just live in fear of cutting and pasting wrong. So, <laughs> but you know, they obviously exist. So, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I'm one of those. Oh, there you go. Yes. So um, I wrote in word almost exclusively. I still write in word almost exclusively. Um, I write up to a certain point, I think up to about 30,000, 40,000 words in the same document. Um, it, also, it just so happens that the two contemporary novels that I have written have been multiple points of view and multiple timelines. Mm -hmm. And In the initial stages, I need to see how things are flowing as I write on. Because every day when I pick up the manuscript and I start you know, to write the next, I read what has happened just, you know, just before in the mm -hmm. story, as it were, not what I've written, but what has happened in the story. Um, and that needs to be in order so that I can write the next thing that comes to me. So up to about 30,000 words, I have them all in the same manuscript. Then I start dividing them into POVs because then I treat each POV as its own individual story. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I frequently, though, I think once in, you know, every, say, 10,000 words I've added, I it's a messy process. And I don't know if this will work for everyone, but I try to put them in order in a document with a lot of titles, subheadings, so that when you see the navigation panel in your word, mm -hmm. you see how the chapters pan out. Past, present, how many POVs. Um the nice thing about that is you can click the next POV and just scroll back up to the ending of the previous chapter. Mm -hmm. And you can see, you know, if you have picked up where you have left off so that there is continuity in, in, the, in the story. And if, I do that often. And then I go back to the original 
you know, um, POV draft that I have in a separate document and write on. Um, it has been messy and I am trying to find a new um, order, but, you know, messy or not, it worked uh, for me. Well, and if it works for you, I mean, for me, I, I just think Scrivener would, would, you know, but if it doesn't, if that, if this works for you, then this works for you. I mean, we all build more tools over time, but I find this fascinating. So 30,000 words, you're writing your way into the story. You're understanding who these characters are, what the points of view are, what you need, the structure that you need to build. And then you divide into the POVs, you know, the, the book. And do you write one POV, the whole narrative arc, or do you keep moving you know, do you go back and forth or how does that work? Um, so with In the Dark, I See You, after about, I think, 40,000 words, um, I was so in one character's head that I had to finish that POV. Yeah. Is that voice and and that tone was bleeding into the other character. I tried writing one chapter from the other character's point of view and it kind of bled a little into that and I realized no I need to come back to this and finish this character's POV so that I can get their voice out of my head um because that's the thing about multiple POVs is that you know you have completely different characters who need to be different human yeah. beings with different feelings and thoughts and sensations and you know, you need to be, but you, when you're writing them, you have to be in their head. So after about 40,000 words, I struggled with going back and forth. I'm like, no, I need to do Audrey's POV first. So, and and, and it's multiple timelines in the same um, character too. So I needed to do both timelines of that character simultaneously, figure out, you know, where that story was going, then jump to my other character, write mm -hmm. that POV. Um, in between, if something's really compelling, like if 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 I'm writing one one POV and that has a very um, you know deep impact on the other character, and that comes to me, then I will just go and make a note so that I don't forget it uh, yeah. when I go back to that other character. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I'm you know that's but this next one that I'm writing, I'm writing in third person, and I'm writing all the POVs together. So I'm going to have to see how that works out <laughs> once I'm done. Um, in your novel, you also, uh, one of your characters, it doesn't have sight or, or is visually impaired. Uh, so that's a, how did you make sure that you were writing that character authentically with grace? What work did you have to do in order to make that character authentic? Um, I think the first thing is I try to not assume anything about that character and how their life works. Um, because that is the first instinct when you're writing. You just assume that, oh, this is how they probably do it. So as I was writing it, if I had any doubt, I have... I. I, I do a little markup, you know, um, like a legend, and then I can go back and figure out what the legends are um, and then look it up accordingly. And some of that um, was I left it to, I left the research until the end because every time, you know, research, everybody knows is, is a rabbit hole. 
You get into it, it leads you to 10 other pages. Next thing you know, you've completely forgotten what it was you wanted to write that day. So I was like, okay, let me not get into that. If I have a doubt, I'm just going to mark it using a legend and get back to it later. Because most of those things are incidental. They're not the main things. Like, you know, how a person makes tea. Um, They're things that move the story along are not exact parts of the story. So it can become, you know, you can come back to it and fix it later. But to write Audrey authentically, first, I try to get in touch with, um, uh, you know, people who have no vision. So the difference is that my uh, my character has no vision. She is blind, uh, which is different from visually impaired, where a person has some vision. Um, so my character has something called NLP, which is no light perception. And these were things I had to figure out later. Because the whole story can change if your character has some vision, right? Um, you know, versus no vision. So a lot of that research, um, I think I paused about 60% of the way writing Audrey's POV because then it started getting tricky without knowing some of these details. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because if she if she can see even a little, that little is going to come under a huge uh, uh, cloud of questions. Um, You know, how much did she see? What could she really see? Did she imagine seeing it? There's so much to that. So I was like, okay, wait, I need to figure this out. So I went, did some research. Um, Luckily today, we do have so much information out there, but you have to be careful and sift through them to make sure that you're not reading somebody's opinion on it and that it is fact. So that is something I would just, you know, um, tell everyone is, Make sure the sources that you are, um, you know, relying on are authentic sources. Mm-hmm. If you're in doubt, hold off, speak to people about it. You know, there are people who have, you know, speak to people with lived experiences mm-hmm. because there's nothing more authentic than that. So that's the next thing that I look for is people who have lived this experience, who are living this experience. Um, and I was very lucky to come across this um uh, blog called uh, Late Night Writing with Mimsy. Uh, Mimsy Rima is her, uh, is her name, and um, she has light perception, so she has a little vision. Um, but she was able to like her blog, and you know, chatting with her a little was really really helpful in how to approach Audrey authentically. Because the other thing to you know with writing an experience that is different to most of the experiences that people read about is like something like having no vision mm-hmm. or, you know, any other challenge that people live with um, or the abilities that they develop, um, you know, living with these challenges is perceived through things that we read and the the movies and TV and can we really rely on that? And then I realized that means that responsibility lies, you know, lies on, on me too, because somebody will be reading, you know, at some point my work and assuming that that is how this lived experience is going to be. And that is such a responsibility. So when, you know, when that kind of struck me, I, I hit like a big pause button. I'm like, wait, I need to not just get this right. I need to make it 100% authentic. 
Yeah. Uh, they, you know, and staying away from the cliche, making, you know, some someone with a disability a superhero, that they can magically do all these things. It, these are really hard pitfalls. <laughs> so um, the research and talking to people really helped, um, you know, get Audrey B uh, to be an authentic uh, person, not, you know, not someone who can just magically, you know, um, cross 20 miles on a, on a magic wand. And... Right. Well, I, this is great. And I appreciate this conversation because I, folks wrestle with how to write characters who don't have their same lived experience. And it, I love your first thing you said, which is don't assume. Don't assume you know. Don't assume anything. Make sure you do research first and talk to people who do have that lived experience to make sure you can't fit what you want that character's lived experience to be to your narrative if it's not going to bring true or, 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 you know, be authentic. Yeah, yeah. Because also in, you know, writing the specific genre thriller, suspense, psychological suspense, believability is plays a huge part. Like I've, I've heard yeah. refer to it as a, um, you know, like a purse full of it and how much you keep handing out from it, um, you know, up to a point where it gets to be that you've handed out more than what you had in your purse. Um, and, and then the, you know, it's completely unbelievable. And yeah. You have to, that's when things like genre and all that really, really matters. Um, cause, um, you know, the story, authenticity is not just the voice and the lived-in experiences. It is the plot, too. I love this. This is great. Um, let's, as we're wrapping up, let's, you know, what do you wish you'd known earlier in your journey? Uh, and, you know, what advice did you get that was completely unhelpful <laughs> um, as you were doing this? So as we're, you know, because uh, this has been a rich conversation with lots of, you know, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about you writing in word in four points of view and different timelines for all day. I think this is going to be something I think about. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, what's, you know, what do you wish you'd known earlier and what's the worst piece of advice? Um, so there was this critique group that I was a part of that on hindsight, I, that was probably not the group for me. Um, and there are, there are multiple groups. Not everybody is for, you know, not everything is for everybody. So find, find the one that supports you the best. But some of the advice I got there was one big one was, um, it was actually like a mockery really of purple prose. And I didn't wow. know that term. This was back when I was a really, really new writer. And I had to go back home and look up the term and see what is purple prose. I have no idea what it is. And um, it was hurtful a little bit because, you know, I was there for feedback on the story. Um, and so first thing is to say that I do object to that term <laughs> a little bit. I think it's Can you define it for folks so that we, you know, everyone knows how what you're yeah. talking about? So purple prose uh, is what is called um, flowery language, mm -hmm. where descriptive words are used to, dis you know, to, to convey something very simple. Mm -hmm. So in, instead of saying um, 
Oh gosh, of course, I can't think of an example right now. Right. The purple prose, depending on the, you know, historical context or the writers. I mean, there's some writers who are so descriptive that that's part of the reason you love them is that you're, you know, falling into the scene and smelling and tasting and, you know. So um, um, that was to me uh, not bad advice per se. It is, um, you know, because good and bad is relative. It it all depends on the genre that you are writing. Right. You're writing a super fast-paced thriller full of action. Flowery language might slow it down. So you want to cut back on it so that you can move the story, um, you know, keeping with the pace that you've you worked so hard to build. Uh, but at the same time, if you're writing literary fiction and poetry, yes, yes, go for it. Use that flowery language because we want to know, we want every word of it. We want, you know, the wind right. description and we want the flower and how the petal twirled. And those are beautiful things. Those yeah. are the words that we read those genres for. So, um, but it made me think about it. It made me consider. So that's why I wouldn't ever think of it as bad advice. It was advice that gave me pause and it made me reconsider how I perceive the language that I'm writing. Does it fit the genre and the scene that I'm writing? So, right, right. Um, and um, you asked also, you know, if there was something that I knew before. Um, or that I, you wish you'd known. Yeah. 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 Um, I wish I'd known it before. I think that is hindsight is um is such a luxury. Um and there, there are there are there are many things I wish I'd known before. And one of the biggest ones is patience. That it is mm -hmm. going to take time mm -hmm. to get from where you are to where you want to be. And if you reach the destination, the first step that you took, there would be no journey. Um, and that took me time. And I wish I'd known that before because I would always like jump uh, to, you know, people writing the ends. And I'm like, but they wrote it so fast. I'm like, no, it it takes time. It takes patience. And that's, um, it's not like a wish as much as I, it's something that I learned over the years that everything takes time and patience and everything happens in your its own timeline and that you have mm -hmm. often no control over anything besides what you are doing. So your writing, your editing, your communications with your agent, editor, magazine, whoever is up to you. Anything beyond that is out of your control. So that patience that you need to have at that point is, is going to build up that resistance that you need to get through you know, the years of everything, rejections and um, the process of getting published. And um, But I wouldn't wish that things had gone differently because I would have never learned it. Um, you know, this is a lesson that yeah. I needed to learn and I'm and I'm thankful that it, things did happen the way they did so that I, I, I am where I am right now because of that. I, what a great way to to sort of capstone this this entire conversation and what wonderful advice about patience and journeys because um it's very wise and and very true and hopefully folks can take it to heart and um and enjoy your work but also um i'm so grateful that we've had this conversation malika this has been great thank you so much julie for having me i've enjoyed talking to you about this and we could chat on for this for the rest of 
know. I know. Well, best of luck with the new novel and wrestling word. And, um, <laughs> and thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast. <laughs>